Right, good evening ladies and gentlemen. My name is Martin Lachlan. I'm Professor of Public Law here, Head of the Law Department, and it's my pleasure this evening to welcome you to this lecture. The lecture is uh, the latest in a series of lectures organized by British government at the LSE on the health of our political institutions. We've had insightful presentations this session from, amongst others, the Metropolitan Police Commissioner, uh, Sir Gus O'Donnell, the outgoing Cabinet uh, Secretary on the work of the Cabinet Office, and from Alistair Darling on the Office of the Chancellor of, of the Exchequer. And I've no doubt that this evening's lecture will be equally stimulating and challenging. This evening's talk will be given by Lord Sumption, who in January of this year was appointed a Justice of the Supreme Court, itself one of our newest of institutions of government. Jonathan Sumption's brief biography is conventional enough, Eton and Oxford, Brick Court and the Bench. It's the standard trajectory for the higher judiciary for, well, forever. <laughs> but behind those briefest of biographical facts, there are some noteworthy variants. The first is that by taking up a career at the bar, Jonathan Sumption gave, of, gave up what was a most promising academic career as a historian. He was for several years a history fellow at Magdalen College, Oxford, specializing in the Hundred Years' War. He has written a number of very highly praised works, including the Albigensian Crusade, and I think two of the pr promised three volumes on the Hundred Years' War. He may have given up an academic career, but he certainly hasn't given up his academic writing. Rather, he's relegated that to the role of a hobby while pursuing a flourishing and I suspect slightly more lucrative career at the commercial bar. In addition to commercial practice, Lord Sumption has in recent years appeared for the government in a number of important cases and inquiries, most notice, notably perhaps he represented the government in the Hutton inquiry into the circumstances surrounding the de death of Dr. David Kelly, but he's also represented the government in a number of major cases, including the legal fallout of the collapse of BCCI in the early 1990s. The second significant aspect of Jonathan Sumption's career is that almost uniquely in modern history, he has been appointed directly from the bar straight to our highest court. There is, I think, only one other English, English jurist who has made that leap, and that was Lord Radcliffe in the mid-20th century. There's no doubt indeed, ladies and gentlemen, that this evening's speaker is a rare talent indeed. Lord Sumption will speak on foreign policy in the UK courts since 9-11. Well,
Lenormand's, wrote the French novelist Honoré de Balzac, are spiders' webs laid out to catch the little insects which the great insects pass through unscathed. In the Law's bestiary, there are few greater insects than the state. There is a school of thought that holds that not only is the state the greatest insect, but also the most poisonous. And for a number of years, the conduct of foreign affairs has served as one of the great forensic battlegrounds between those who take that view and successive governments who understandably do not. Um, there are a number of reasons why this should quite recently have become such a significant issue. In the first place, in the short life of the present century, foreign affairs have generated moral issues of passionate concern to a significant part of our population, far more, I think, than any comparable period since the Second World War. Nuclear weapons development, relations with autocracies with poor human rights records, and the use of armed force in Iraq are just three of the more obvious illustrations of that. We may not believe, with Machiavelli, that there is no subterfuge too great to be deployed in the interests of the state, but the polar opposite is just as problematical. It is exceptionally difficult to operate a morally pure foreign policy. Relations between states necessarily involve a large measure of compromise between different and sometimes opposing values, even when one is dealing uh, with uh, other countries that are both allies and democracies. The response of Western democracies to the threat of international terrorism has at times been characterized, particularly in the United States, uh, by a degree of ruthlessness which raises major moral issues of its own and is hard to reconcile with either uh, their uh, legal traditions or ours. Uh, secondly, uh, the growing emphasis uh, in English public law on transparency in government, combined with the very wide scope of English rules of disclosure in litigation uh, and the diminishing role of public interest immunity from disclosure, uh, has exposed the workings of government in an area of human activity which has for centuries depended on confidentiality of communications and on the secrecy of intelligence gathering operations. Uh, in a recent case, a divisional court of the Queen's Bench Division took the view that the press had a distinct interest in the question uh, whether communications about intelligence between the British and American governments, which had been the subject of a public interest immunity certificate by the Foreign Secretary, should be published. Uh, I doubt whether this would have occurred to an earlier generation of judges. Uh, thirdly, uh, and partly because of these factors, uh, the operations of government in the domain of foreign policy and intelligence gathering have aroused intense distrust and suspicion uh, in the press with an important section of the public, and it is fair to say, with part of the judiciary. Uh, this distrust is not easy to dispel uh, without compromising the confidentiality of communications with foreign governments and the secrecy which is bound to, to affect intelligence work if it is to be effective. Uh, fourth, the background to all of these developments has been the exponential growth of judicial review of government over the past 30 years, 
a development which has led many people to look to the courts to inject a higher morality into public decision-making, uh, untrammeled by the impurities of the political process. But law is animated by a combination of abstract reasoning and moral value judgment. This is a heady mixture which seems a great deal more attractive and more honourable to many people than the messy compromises which are in practice required to maintain relations between foreign states. In England, the significance of this factor is greatly increased by the breadth of the English rules about standing uh, in judicial review proceedings, that's to say the rules governing who is entitled to bring proceedings for judicial review of government actions. Uh, this approach necessarily, uh, just about anybody can apply uh, to, uh, for judicial review if he has either a personal interest in the outcome or, or an institutional concern with it. This is an approach which exposes the courts to a great deal of litigation, which is essentially politics by other means. Uh, it also opens up government to challenges in the courts by pressure groups, uh, often concerned with a single issue, which have no interest uh, in the process of accommodation between opposing interests and values, which is fundamental to the ability of nations to live in peace. Uh, fifth, and, and arguably the most important single factor, the enactment into English law of the European Convention on Human Rights has obliged the court to scrutinise foreign policy decisions impacting on domestic human rights in a way that would not have been required before. I shall say more about this factor later in this talk. It is a matter of speculation, but I suspect that if Britain were still a world power, the interests of the state would receive a, mar a larger measure of respect from both the public and the courts, as they once did in England, and still by and large do in the United States. The projection of national power, whether hard or soft, no longer strikes most people as a major public interest on a par with, say, the protection of human rights at home and abroad. Uh, it isn't my function uh, either to welcome or regret these changes. I simply note that they have happened uh, and command broad assent among most of the politically informed population. They are therefore inevitably part of the background against which judges have to decide the growing number of cases relating to foreign policy which come before them. Until recently, foreign policy uh, was one area in which the government did indeed pass unscathed through Balzac's spider's web. The same was broadly true of the attendant domains of defence and intelligence. Almost every governmental act in the field of foreign relations is an exercise by ministers of the prerogative powers of the Crown. Except in marginal areas of foreign policy, such as extradition, immigration, nationality and international development, there is almost no statute law. At one time, it was thought that this fact alone made it immune from judicial scrutiny. But in the Council of Civil Service Unions and the Minister for the Civil Service, uh, in 1985, the House of Lords held that the mere fact that the legal authority for an act of government was the prerogative of the Crown did not make it immune from judicial review. However, it went on to say uh, that the subject matter of some prerogative powers might have that effect. Three out of five members uh, of the uh, committee that decided the case 
expressed the view that foreign affairs were not susceptible to judicial review. This, according to Lord Roskill, uh, was because their nature and subject matter is such as not to be amenable to the judicial process. The courts are not the place wherein to determine whether a treaty should be concluded or the armed forces disposed in a particular manner. That this judicial instinct was not peculiar to England, it is also a feature of the law of a number of continental jurisdictions, including the Netherlands and Italy. <coughs> it exists in most common law countries and in a highly developed form in the United States, where the rules about standing are much tighter than they are in England and the relative immunity of the executive's foreign policy decisions from judicial scrutiny is the most robust part of the so-called political questions doctrine. As Justice Jackson said in the Supreme Court of the United States uh, in a famous case in 1950, it is not the function of the judiciary to entertain litigation which challenges the legality, the wisdom, or the propriety of the commander-in-chief in sending our armed forces abroad to any particular region. The English courts, in keeping with their traditional suspicion of large constitutional theories, have not been very good at explaining why the courts should be any more reticent in dealing with the Foreign Secretary's decisions than those of, say, the State Secretary of State for Work and Pensions. Uh, two approaches can be discerned in the innumerable judicial statements on this subject. But one is based on the concept of non-justiciability, and the other on the constitutional division of powers. The theory of non-justiciability is the more ancient of the two and also uh, the more absolute. To say that something is non-justiciable is to say that there is a rule of law that the courts cannot deal with it by virtue of its subject matter. It is tantamount uh, to a limitation on the jurisdiction of the courts, albeit one which the judges have imposed upon themselves. The concept of non-justiciability is founded upon the proposition that the very nature of the relations between states means that there are no legal standards by which to determine the lawfulness of sovereign acts done in the conduct of the sovereign's foreign relations. It follows that even if the court has jurisdiction over the parties, it has no right at all to pronounce on the subject matter. In Blackburn and the Attorney General, the Court of Appeal in 1971 dismissed Mr Blackburn's application for an injunction to restrain the government from acceding uh, to the Treaty of Rome on the grounds that the Crown had power to accede. Uh, they did not do this on the grounds that the, power to, uh, the Crown had power to accede to the Treaty and had not been shown to have acted uh, in breach of any principle of public law. Instead, the proceedings were dismissed on the ground of non-justiciability. Uh, Lord Denning said uh, that the power of the Crown in the making of treaties cannot be challenged or questioned in any court. The high watermark of this theory came in the 1970s uh, in uh, litigation between Butte's Gas and Occidental Petroleum, uh, which was occurring in parallel in both England and the United States. This was a dispute between two oil companies about the location of the boundary uh, between the sheikdoms of Umm al-Kawan and Sharjah in the Persian Gulf, a matter of great interest to them because each of the rulers of those two states had given the two companies an oil drilling concession in precisely the same area which each of them uh, professed to regard as its own territory. 
that the issue was decided, or rather left undecided, on both sides of the Atlantic, on the ground that it raised questions which were non-justiciable, because no law bounds the acts of sovereigns in their dealings with each other. It was, at least in the view of the United States Court, Hobbes's state of nature that prevailed, at least in the Persian Gulf. In the United States proceedings, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals said this, a judicial resolution of the dispute over Abu Musa between Iran and Sharjah is clearly impossible. In their external relations, sovereigns are bound by no law. They are like our ancestors before the recognition or imposition of the social contract. A prerequisite of law is a recognized superior authority, whether delegated from below or imposed from above. Uh, where there is no recognized authority, there is no law. Because no law exists binding these sovereigns and allocating rights and liabilities, no method exists to judicially resolve their disagreements. The ownership of the island, uh, and derivatively its waters, has long been the subject of dispute. Were we to resolve this dispute, we would not only usurp the executive power, but it also intrudes the judicial power beyond its philosophical limits. Echoing these sentiments in the English proceedings, Lord Wilberforce, delivering the leading speech in the House of Lords, held, leaving aside all possibility of embarrassment in our foreign relations, that there are no judicial or manageable standards by which to judge these matters, or to adopt another phrase, the court would be in a judicial no-man's land. Both of these cases were decided on the basis that, as between sovereigns, there is no law. This might be thought rather strange, since international law is certainly law. Now, there must, after all, have been an answer to the question where, as a matter of international law, the boundary between these two territories lay, however difficult it might be to discover what that answer was. Now, the more satisfactory uh, analysis of cases like the Butte's gas litigation was probably that it turned on a peculiarity of Anglo-American jurisprudence known as the Foreign Act of State Doctrine. Uh, this is a doctrine that does not depend on the absence of judicial standards by which to assess uh, what are in most cases uh, simply bog-standard torts committed on an imperial scale. Uh, it depends on the principle of comity that the courts of one country will not sit in judgment on the sovereign acts of another, even though they are relevant and even though the courts will be perfectly competent to do it. Partly for these reasons, there has more recently been a retreat from the extreme positions adopted uh, in Butte's gas, at any rate in England. Uh, in Kuwait Airways Corporation and Iraqi Airways Company, uh, a case which arose uh, out of the theft of aircraft belonging to Kuwait Airways Corporation by Iraqi Airways in the aftermath of the Ira Iraqi occupation of Kuwait, the House of Lords gave relief to the owners of the stolen aircraft on the basis that the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait uh, was a flagrant breach of international law and there was no reason why an English court should not say so. The non-justiciability principle, it was said, did not mean that the judiciary must shut their eyes to a breach of an established principle of international law committed by one state against another where the breach is plain and indeed acknowledged. The truth is that non-justiciability has never been a very satisfactory explanation of the reluctance of the courts to interfere with the conduct of English foreign relations. The acts of the executive are by definition justiciable in its own courts. 
powers of the Crown in the conduct of foreign affairs, except in the few areas governed by statute, are discretionary powers. There are principles of public law governing the exercise of all discretionary powers, which are perfectly capable of being applied to the conduct of foreign policy, just as they are to any other area of executive action. If in practice the courts intervene only very rarely in these matters, it cannot be on the grounds that there are no relevant legal standards or that the issue is incapable of being resolved by judges. It must be on the ground that the constitutional distribution of powers among the organs of the state makes foreign policy the peculiar province of the executive. But having said that, so what? All executive discretions are assigned by our constitution to the executive. Discretions in the conduct of foreign affairs are simply broader than other discretions. It's a question of degree. In a case called Secretary of State for the Home Department and Riemann, Lord Hoffman, delivering the principal speech in the House of Lords, justified the reticence of the courts in the closely related area of national security uh, on grounds which were essentially pragmatic and constitutional but had nothing to do with justiciability. What he said was this, it's not only that the executive has access to special information and expertise in these matters, it's also that such decisions with serious potential results for the community require a legitimacy which can only be conferred by entrusting them to persons responsible to the community through the democratic process. If people are to accept the consequences of such decisions, they must be made by persons whom the people have elected and whom they can remove. This is, of course, a test of appropriateness rather than jurisdiction, and it operates much more flexibly. For however wide the executive's discretion is, it cannot be unlimited or exercisable per perversely uh, or for any purpose whatever. At very much the same point was made by the Court of Appeal in Marchiori and Environment Agency in 2002. Uh, this was ostensibly a case about environmental standards, uh, but in fact a not very well concealed challenge to the United Kingdom's defence policy. Miss Marchiori was an anti-nuclear weapons campaigner. She objected to the fact that the Environment Agency had authorised the discharge of nuclear waste from a military facility where warheads were manufactured for Trident missiles. Her argument was that under the Euratom Treaty, uh, such authorisations required a justification by reference to some public benefit, and there was, she said, no public benefit associated with the possession of nuclear warheads. The idea that the proper organ of the United Kingdom uh, to weigh up the public benefits of possessing nuclear weapons uh, might be an official of the Environment Agency has not struck many people before. But of course, it was not what Miss Marchiori really wanted to achieve. This was demonstrative litigation. What she wanted was a decision of the courts, even if she had to go via the Environment Agency in order to get one. The judgment of Lord Justice Laws in the Court of Appeal contains a very interesting statement of where we currently are on issues that would once have been regarded as a no-go area for judges. It seems to me, he said, to be plain that the law of England will not contemplate what may be called a merits review of any honest decision of government on matters of national defence policy. Without going into other cases which a full discussion might require, I consider that there is more than one reason for this. The first and most obvious is that the, courts, the court is unequipped to judge such merits or demerits. 
The second touches more closely on the relationship between the elected and the unelected arms of government. The graver a matter of state and the more widespread its possible effects, the more respect will be given within the framework of the Constitution to democracy and to, uh, to decide its outcome. This is not and cannot be any expectation that the unelected there is not and cannot be any expectation that the unelected judiciary will play any role in such questions remotely comparable to that of government. Secondly, however, this primacy which the common law accords to the elected government in matters of defence is by no means the whole story. Democracy itself requires that all public power should be lawfully conferred and exercised, and of this the courts are the surety. No matter how grave the policy issues involved, the courts will be alert to see that no use of power exceeds its proper constitutional bounds. Uh, the last decade uh, has witnessed the progress progressive retreat uh, of the courts from the non-justiciability theory and the advance of the qualified division of powers theory, which, as I have suggested, is simply rather a grand way of emphasising uh, the breadth of the government's discretion in matters of defence and foreign policy. The result has been, as one might have predicted, that the boundary of that discretion has been drawn in different places depending on the nature of the particular decision under review. Some aspects of the conduct of the United Kingdom's foreign relations have proved to be as readily reviewable as any other more mundane executive decision. The extreme case is, of course, the choice between peace and war. <coughs> In reviewing the military interventions of the English government, the courts have arrived at a position practically indistinguishable from the non-justiciability rule, although justified on a quite different basis. The legality of the Anglo-American invasion of Iraq in 1973 was, to put it mildly, a matter of some controversy everywhere outside the United States. The great majority of international lawyers of repute considered it to be contrary to international law in the absence of the United Nations authority and did not accept that any of the relevant resolutions of the United Nations conferred that authority. The United States was inclined to respond to this difficulty in the same way as the British had done at the time of the Suez Crisis in 1956, i.e. by ignoring it. In 1956, the Attorney General, Sir Reginald Manning of Buller, and the Solicitor General, Sir Harry Hilton Foster, both supported the invasion politically, or both, although both of them believed and privately said to the Prime Minister that they had no doubt that it was illegal. The Chief of Imperial General Staff, Sir Gerald Templer, issued the deployment orders but without troubling himself with the legal issues at all. These are attitudes characteristic of an imperial power and we should not be particularly surprised to find them adopted in our own time by the United States. It is a sign of how far the climate in British opinion has changed by 2003 that the Chiefs of Staff required an assurance uh, from the Attorney General before giving deployment orders to invade Iraq that the operations there would be lawful. They famously received uh, an assurance which had been prepared by the Attorney General on a basis not wholly consistent with his previously expressed views and supported by reasoning which provoked the resignation of one of the Foreign Office legal advisers uh, and was rejected by every serious authority on international law. Uh, in Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament against the Prime Minister, a decision uh, shortly before the invasion, a divisional court presided over by Lord Justice Simon Brown 
dismissed an application by the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament for a declaration that United Nations Resolution 1441 did not authorise military action against Iraq, to which the British and Americans were rapidly moving. But the court was well aware of the difficulty about Resolution 1441 as being, being treated as an authority for war and referred to that difficulty in its judgment. But it refused to rule on the meaning of an international instrument on two grounds. Uh, first of all, it said it had no jurisdiction to declare its meaning in circumstances where it wasn't relevant to any domestic law right or interest of the applicants. Secondly, as a matter of discretion, such a declaration should not, the court thought, in any event be made because it would adversely affect the international relations of the United Kingdom, potentially embarrass the government and tie its hands in any delicate international negotiations on the question. The result would presumably have been exactly the same if the application, instead of being made three months before the deployment orders had been issued, had been made at the precise point when they were being given, although the government would on that footing have made the decision to invade the, uh, Iraq on a basis of an arguably erroneous view about the relevant law. The reasoning of the court implies that the government's discretion in the conduct of foreign affairs extends to negotiating or conducting military operations even on the wrong legal footing. It must be most unlikely uh, that the court would have held back in the same way if some less momentous decision was being made on a legally erroneous basis. Uh, in his concurring judgment, Lord Justice Kay observed, I readily accept that the ambit of the forbidden areas is not immutable, uh, and that there are cases which illustrate how the areas identified by Lord Roskill in the Council of Civil Service Unions case have to be reduced. However, the authorities provide no hint of retreat in relation to the subject matter of the present case. In the Crown against Jones in 2006, the House of Lords dealt with a number of criminal appeals arising out of the attempt of the defendants to trespass on military bases shortly before the invasion of Iraq began in an attempt to obstruct the deployment of tanks, aircraft and other equipment. Uh, her defence uh, was that she was legally entitled uh, to take steps to obstruct what she regarded as a criminal attempt on the part of the government to wage aggressive war. Lord Bingham, who presided over the appeals, is now known from his writings after he retired to have believed that the war was illegal. But in common with the rest of the committee, he rejected the appellant's defence on the ground that it was not appropriate for English law uh, to recognise an offence of waging aggressive war. The reason was that this was, as he would, as he put it, call for a decision on the culpability of going to war uh, of either Her Majesty's government or a foreign government, or perhaps both if the states had gone to war as allies but there are well-established rules that the courts will be very slow to review the exercise of prerogative powers in relation to foreign affairs and the deployment of the armed services, and very slow to adjudicate upon rights arising out of transactions entered into between sovereign states on the plane of international law. One can see Lord Bingham here expressing the rule not, as Lord Justice Kay had done, as a question of justiciability, but as a principle of judicial caution in cases concerning the conduct of foreign relations. The court was not, in other words, precluded from reviewing governmental decisions in this area 
it should merely be very slow to do so. Only an extreme case would justify it. When one comes to less critical foreign policy decisions than the choice between peace and war or the ratification of treaties, the courts are in practice a great deal more inclined to intervene. In Abbasi, against the Secretary of State for Foreign and Commonwealth Affairs, the applicant was a British subject who had been detained by the Americans at Guantanamo Bay. But the applicant submitted that his detention was a violation of his fundamental human rights and that the Secretary of State owed a duty to assist him. The Secretary of State submitted that the English court could not examine the legitimacy of action taken by a foreign sovereign state, i.e. the United States, nor could it adjudicate upon actions taken by the British government in its conduct of relations with that state. The Court of Appeal didn't accept either side's submission in its full breadth. It did consider the lawfulness of the Foreign Secretary's <coughs> position. It concluded that international law uh, recognised no general duty to protect a citizen abroad. It then proceeded to apply to the Foreign Secretary's decision all the ordinary principles of public law relating to, the, to substantive expectations and so on, uh, and found on the basis of public statements of policy by the Foreign Office uh, that there was a legitimate expectation which was enforceable that the Foreign Secretary would at least consider making direct representations to foreign governments on behalf of British citizens. Since Mr Abbasi's request had in fact been considered by the Foreign Secretary, his application failed. The Court held that it would have been inappropriate to order the Foreign Secretary to make any specific representations to the United States, even in the face of an apparently clear breach of a fundamental human right, because this would have interfered with the conduct of foreign policy and done so at a particularly delicate time. But in spite of the delicacy of the situation to which the court referred, the court then expressed its own view that Mr. Abbasi was being detained in contravention of fundamental principles recognized in both England and the United States and contrary to international law. So having held that it should not require the Foreign Secretary to make the representations that Mr. Abbasi wanted in the interests of preserving at the free hand of English diplomats in a delicate situation, the court then made precisely those representations itself. Perhaps that did the trick. The Secretary of State shortly afterwards announced that Mr Abbasi was to be returned after intensive and complex discussions with the United States government, and in January 2005 he was flown back to the United Kingdom. Al-Rawi against the Foreign Secretary shortly afterwards was another case about prisoners in Guantanamo seeking consular support from the British government. Uh, their position was even more difficult than Mr Abbasi's because the, although they had all at one stage lived in the United Kingdom, they were not nationals so that the United Kingdom had no standing under the various Anglo-American consular treaties to make representations on their behalf. Two of them had been arrested in the Gambia uh, and rendered uh, to an American base in Afghanistan and the third had been captured by bounty hunters in Pakistan and handed over to the Americans. All of them ended up in Guantanamo. The main issue in the case was whether there was some principle of international law which required the Foreign Secretary to intervene. For our purposes, however, the interest of the case lies in the observations of the Court of Appeal contrasting the current approach 
uh, to judicial review of foreign policy decisions with the one that would have been adopted uh, two decades before. The conduct of foreign relations by the executive government of the United Kingdom, they said, would have been regarded as beyond the scope of judicial review. A generation or more ago, the courts would, we think, have said that there was no jurisdiction to conduct such a review. More recently, the line would have been, has been, that the conduct of foreign relations is so particularly the responsibility of government that it would be wrong for the courts to tread on such ground. And aside from the division of constitutional territory, the courts have not the competence to pass objective judgments hardening into law into such an intricate area of state practice. However, in this case, uh, Mr Justice Collins granted permission to seek judicial review of the United Kingdom's response to requests for assistance. The case was heard by the Divisional Court. Uh, no point as to jurisdiction was taken. What, the court asked, has been the engine of such a painstaking review in an area which in recent years was thought barely apt for judicial review at all? It went on to give the explanation. The prisoners at, at Guantanamo Bay, it said, that some of them at least, have suffered grave privations. In this appeal, we should in our judgment proceed on the premise that the detainee claimants have been subject to at least inhuman and degrading treatment. The case is thus acute on its facts. The force which seeks to press the courts into this area and within it to exercise a robust independent judgment is the legal and ethical muscle of human rights and refugee status. To our minds, the centre of the case consists in appeals to the claimant's human rights and in the case of two of the applicants, refugee status. We have to decide how far such appeals should rightly press the courts into territory that they do not generally occupy and have not so far occupied. The shift away from non-justiciability is here overtly acknowledged and so, rather strikingly, is the reason for it, namely the growing emphasis on the protection of human rights and the barely concealed revulsion of English judges against the conduct of the United States. Uh, this is the second of the trio of cases in which strong objections to the American treatment of so-called unlawful competence has been publicly expressed from the bench and has contributed to moving the legal goalposts within the United States' principal ally. The applications failed, but what matters about the decision is the application to foreign policy decisions of the ordinary public principles of lawfulness, rationality uh, and fairness. Uh, the sensitivity of the subject matter is reflected only uh, in the recognition of a much wider margin of appreciation because of the foreign policy background to the dispute. At the conclusion of the judgment, the Court of Appeal said this, this case has involved issues touching both the government's conduct of foreign relations and national security, preeminently the former. In those areas, the common law assigns the duty of decision upon the merits to the elected arm of government, all the more so if they combine in the same case. This is the law for constitutional as well as pragmatic reasons. The court's role is to see that the government strictly complies with all formal requirements and rationally considers the matters it has to confront. The third of the trio of cases, which was clearly strongly influenced by the judicial revulsion against American policies and methods, was the decision initially of a divisional court and then of the Court of Appeal in Binyam Mohammed against the Foreign Secretary uh, in 2011. The case had a curious history. Uh, it began as a private law action on the Norwich Pharmacal Principle 
by Mr. Mohammed at a time when he was in Guantanamo, Guantanamo awaiting trial before a military tribunal for his alleged activities as an unlawful competent. The Norwich Pharmacal Principle is a rule of law uh, under which a party uh, who requires certain information in order to prosecute his rights against someone else, uh, and that information is in the hands of a third party, is entitled to require that uh, third party to provide it to him, subject to limited exceptions. The relief therefore sought was an order uh, requiring the Foreign Secretary, as the Minister responsible for the Secret Intelligence Service, to disclose communications between the SIS uh, and the American intelligence <coughs> services which would help him to prove that he had been tortured at the request of the Americans by agents of a third country. Uh, the background to the case was therefore extremely unattractive. Mr. Mohammed, however, was released from Guantanamo at an early stage of the proceedings, partly as a result of British government pressure on the United States and partly as a result of the intervention of the US military judge charged with the preliminary assessment of the case. The proceedings nevertheless continued, mainly on the question whether certain paragraphs of the Divisional Court's judgment, which summarised the contents of some of the relevant <coughs> communications between the intelligence services, uh, should be redacted or published. The United States strongly objected to their disclosure, because although the basic facts were by now widely known and acknowledged by the US government itself, they attached great importance to the principle that materials supplied by them under intelligence exchange arrangements should not be further disclosed. The paragraphs in question added circumstantial detail to the very full account of the facts which was to be found in the open part of the judgment, uh, but were not necessary in order to understand the court's reasoning. The only purpose of disclosure at that stage was to vindicate the principle uh, of open justice in all respects uh, and to embarrass the Americans. Uh, there was certainly a widespread feeling among commentators that the Americans ought to be embarrassed, but the Foreign Secretary understandably took the view uh, that as party to the Anglo-American cooperation agreements in intelligence matters, the United Kingdom should not disclose the material against the strong objections of the United States, even though he himself, the Foreign Secretary, would have had no objection to disclosure. Put crudely, therefore, the issue was whether the public interest in open justice, uh, in a case where justice had effectively been done by the release of Mr. Mohammed, required the publication of the offending paragraphs and if so, whether that consideration should prevail over the obligation of confidence which the United Kingdom owed to the United States when it received material of this kind. The majority of the Court of Appeal, consisting of Lord Newberger, the Master of the Rolls, and Lord Justice May, expressed themselves to be sceptical about the Foreign Secretary's view that Anglo-American intelligence cooperation might be adversely affected by the publication but they did not think that it would be right to overturn the judgment of the Foreign Secretary on that particular point. They in fact ordered publication of the redacted paragraphs on a different ground, uh, namely that the argument had been overtaken by events when very shortly before the Court of Appeal gave judgment, a US District Court itself published an account of Mr. Mohammed's treatment uh, at the hands of, of the Americans which removed any confidentiality attached to the material. That ground appears to have no wider implications for the judicial review of foreign policy decisions. 
but the case is nevertheless remarkable because it illustrates the palpable anger of the courts of this country about the position in which they had been placed by the insistence of the Americans on maintaining a confidentiality to which they were certainly entitled under the Anglo-American intelligence arrangements, but which the English courts believed had no continuing purpose other than to suppress embarrassing facts that were known anyway. The divisional court uh, had actually gone so far as to reject a statement made by the US Secretary of State, Mrs. Clinton, about what American policy on the disclosure of their intelligence material was. They said that her statement was irrational and that American policy on the disclosure of intelligence material must have changed since the departure of the Bush administration, notwithstanding her vigorous statements that it had not changed. The majority of the Court of Appeal declined to follow the divisional court down that particular path, but it is perhaps a sign of the growing self-confidence of judges addressing issues of foreign policy. It is extremely rare for diplomatic exchanges of this kind between governments to be put before a court at all, but there cannot be any other English case in which the court, having received it, has responded by characterising the position of the foreign minister of an allied country who was party to the exchange as perverse. None of this means that the courts will positively direct the foreign secretary about how he should deal with foreign countries. All of it depends uh, on his having disregarded some sufficient domestic public interest which the law of the United Kingdom recognises. In Al-Haq and the Foreign Secretary in 2009, the Divisional Court rejected an attempt to build on these past cases by requiring the Foreign Secretary to use his best endeavours to secure the observance by Israel of the human rights of Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank. They held that it was not their function uh, to require the Foreign Secretary to do that. Uh, but it is clear that the critical factor in that decision was the absence of what the court called a domestic foothold, i.e. the absence of some factor engaging the responsibility of the United Kingdom, uh, either because of some connection between the infringement of the victim's human rights uh, and the United Kingdom, uh, sufficient to engage the United Kingdom's government in domestic or international law. Al-Haq was an extreme case in which there was no connection at all other than the connection implicit in the applicant's argument that the whole world ought to be concerned about breaches of human rights by Israel. It is, however, clear that the range of relevant connections with the United Kingdom is very wide and is becoming wider. This is partly because of the widening ambit of the Human Rights Convention as interpreted by the Strasbourg Court. And it is partly because the Strasbourg Court has no doctrine of its own, equivalent to non-justiciability, and no interest in the constitutional distribution of functions uh, within a contracting state such as the United Kingdom. The only tools available to Strasbourg for recognising the special competence of the executive and the legislature uh, in the domain of foreign affairs are the relatively narrow margin of appreciation allowed to contracting states, and the territorial limits of the Convention's application. Now, in Bankovic and against Belgium, the Strasbourg Court declined jurisdiction over the bombing by NATO air forces of Belgrade in 1999, on the ground that the Convention was concerned only with the domestic legal order of the contracting states in their own territory. The Strasbourg Court has subsequently refused to become involved uh, in questions arising from the conduct of troops 
by con of contracting states operating under NATO and United Nations authority in Kosovo on the grounds that NATO and the United Nations are not party to the Convention. But these decisions leave open the possibility that troops acting under the sole authority of Convention states outside their own territory uh, may nevertheless be held to exercise uh, uh, authority of a sovereign nature there, with the result that the Convention may control what they can do. The result may be to impose the principles of the Convention on the conduct of foreign policy and military operations by the United Kingdom without even the more limited degree of deference to the autonomy of the executive, which has characterized recent English case law. As far as English, the United Kingdom is concerned, the most significant decisions on this point have been two cases, Al-Skaini and the United Kingdom, and Al-Jeddah and the United Kingdom, both of which were about the conduct of British troops occupying southern Iraq. Al-Skaini was about the death of civilians in the course of military operations in the immediate aftermath of the invasion of, Q of, of Iraq, and in one case, uh, about the death of a civilian in British military custody there. Al-Jeddah was about the internment without charge or trial of an Iraqi national in a British detention centre in Basra. In Al-Skaini, the House of Lords, by a majority, held that the Convention uh, could apply to the acts of British forces outside the United Kingdom, but limited it to a very narrow category of cases where the United Kingdom was not just a military occupying power, but exercising direct and effective control over the applicant himself. For example, uh, troops had arrested him or were holding him in a military prison. On that footing, the only admissible complaint was that of the Iraqi who had died in British military custody. The Strasbourg Court, however, extended the reach of the Convention beyond those who were directly and effectively controlled by British troops to the whole of the area for which Britain had responsibility as an occupying power. The decision in Al-Skaini effectively decided the outcome of the other case, Al-Jeddah, also, subject to an argument which the United Kingdom ultimately lost uh, about whether the Convention was displaced by the authority of the United Nations resolutions under which British forces were by then acting. These two cases were concerned with the impact of military operations on the particular complainants. Although the application of the Convention to all territory where the United Kingdom is an occupying power will inevitably mean that policy decisions about the conduct of the occupation will fall to be reviewed in circumstances where they wouldn't have been before. Neither case concerns the formulation of British foreign policy in the strict sense of the word. That question did, however, arise in Gentle and Clark against the Prime Minister uh, in 2008. The applicants in that case were the relatives of two British soldiers who had been killed in the course of operations in Iraq. They wanted an independent inquiry into the causes of their deaths, which would address the question uh, whether it had been lawful to deploy them to Iraq at all. They based their claim on Article 2 of the Human Rights Convention, the article which protects the right to life, uh, and which had been previously held by the Strasbourg Court to require a proper investigation uh, into any deaths occurring at the hands of the state. How uh, were they able to say that Article 2 had any application in Iraq? The argument was based on an analogy uh, with decisions of the Strasbourg Court about extradition. Uh, in particular, the Strasbourg Court had previously held that the United Kingdom could not extradite to the United States a person who would be subjected in the United States to inhuman treatment there.
Uh, that decision was made not on the basis that the Convention applied to what the Americans did in America, plainly it didn't. The ground was that the Convention applied to the decision of the United Kingdom to extradite uh, persons, and that was a decision made in the United Kingdom. By parity of reasoning, it was argued, the Convention should apply to decisions made by the United Kingdom government in the United Kingdom to deploy troops to Iraq. Since that was a decision that exposed them to being killed in Iraq, the United Kingdom was bound by Article 2 to conduct a full investigation of the circumstances in which that decision was made. There were two short answers to the applicant's case. The first was that even if the Convention applied on that basis, Article 2 only required the state to investigate the circumstances of the deaths and not the background issue of policy, which led to the soldiers being in Iraq in the first place. The second answer was that the rights or wrongs of the invasion had nothing to do with Article 2 of the Convention. Uh, there was no obligation under Article 2 not to expose soldiers uh, to risks inherent in their profession, and such an obligation could not be said to arise from the mere fact that in this particular case the decision to expose them was or might be contrary to the provisions of another treaty, namely the United Nations Charter. <coughs> the Court of Appeal accepted the first of these points, and the House of Lords accepted both of them. But neither court was willing to leave the matter there. The Court of Appeal was mustard keen to deal with the case on the ground that being a question of foreign policy, the matter uh, lay within the special domain of executive discretion, a point which they referred to not wholly accurately as a question of justiciability. Uh, this was a source of some embarrassment to me as counsel for the government in that case, for although it was a point in my favour, I could see not the slightest respectable basis for it. <laughs> uh, uh, if Article 2 was engaged by the decision to deploy troops in Iraq, then that decision was necessarily justiciable because the Human Rights Act said it was. If it was not engaged, on the other hand, then since their argument was wholly based on it, there was nothing to be decided at all. Nonetheless, the point emerged as the principal ground of the Court of Appeal's decision. In the House of Lords, the appeal was heard by a board of nine. The committee accepted that the decision was justiciable. Uh, but they did observe that the Convention was concerned to regulate relations between contracting states and individuals affected by their actions or inactions. It was never intended, they said, to deal with the legal relations between states, such as the right to conduct military operations, uh, which were dealt with by other international instruments, primarily the United Nations Charter. This at least offers some assurance that the courts do not propose to make a habit of treating the obligation to give effect to the Human Rights Convention as a basis for challenging governmental decisions on major policy choices in foreign affairs. But there is no doubt that they will continue to scrutinise the impact of foreign policy decisions on individuals in a way that would not long ago have been considered unthinkable, especially when questions of human rights are engaged. We now have an opportunity for questions. What I would ask, what I invite you to ask questions is two, two things. First, can you identify yourself and affiliation if you have one? And secondly, please make it a question. <laughs> 
anyone to kick off? My name is Joe Aaron. Very interested in issues of human rights and democracy. Um, I'm very interested if you would like to, if you would be prepared to comment on the impending legislation so much as we know about it, on the, on the government's attempts to say that certain proceedings in the civil courts involving national security and so on should be held in secret. Well, I'm not going to comment on that uh, because for the obvious reason that it's a matter that may come before me judicially. At the moment, I have no view on it. I may have to acquire one in due course. <laughs> I was going to wrap up two or three questions from one go, but... If you... The back. I want to ask about the Mau Mau case, but does the same thing apply? About Mau Mau? Yeah, are you going to... Um, are you going to be sitting here well, I honestly don't know whether it's ever going to reach the Supreme Court or if it does whether I will be sitting. But I'm, I'm simply not going to comment on any matter of current uh, legal controversy which might give rise to litigation. I'm sure you understand the reasons. Yeah. Likely to lead a future litigation is futile. Better go back and get a question on that basis. One left. Hi, um, I'm Lee Solomons. I'm at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. Um, in the uh, Alskani and Al Jeddah judgments, on my reading, the, um, the Strasbourg Court said it was going to apply a test called something like effective whether Britain, United Kingdom, had effective control of the territory. Um, and then <clears throat> in deciding whether the convention applied. And then uh, they said that, okay, we're going on to apply this test now. Um, and Britain claimed to be governing the area in a, um, some sort of document concluded with the United Nations about their occupation. Uh, therefore, uh, they had some troops patrolling. Therefore, they had effective control of the, of the territory. Um, and... Uh, and it struck me that they hadn't fully applied the test they said they were going to. I think there was another test about control of the the person as well, uh, which you referred to. So my question is, when if, if something comes up in in the United Kingdom again, or requiring you to apply this jurisprudence nationally, or I know you don't have to apply it, you take account of it, but. Um, just how, how you might deal with, with the test in the UK and whether it's just how what the interplay is between the Strasbourg decision and um, if it comes up again in another context um, and whether you feel that you know you have to apply this for, formal approach that they took, i.e. There was, there was an occupation in formal terms or whether you can apply a substantive test of control over the individual. Well, there are three possible tests. Uh, number one is uh, that the state is responsible for observing the convention whenever any of its agents uh, impact on any third party. Um, now that would be very wide and nobody has ever espoused that. Certainly it wasn't espoused in Strasbourg. Uh, the second possible test uh, is that um, the uh, you ask who is the nearest thing to a governmental power in the relevant area 
uh, and during the period uh, when the uh, coalition provisional authority was responsible for Iraq. Um, that was, in respect of the southern provinces of Iraq, the United Kingdom. Um, the third possible test uh, is that it's narrower than that. Uh, you simply look uh, at, uh, at the individual applicant or victim and you say, was he in the immediate and direct physical control of the United Kingdom, i.e. was he in the back of a military lorry, for instance. Now, um, the House of Lords had uh, adopted the narrowest test, number three. Uh, they had specifically rejected the wider test uh, based on whether the British, Britain was an occupying power. The reason that they had rejected it was that to be an occupying power does not necessarily give you the degree of control which is normally associated with sovereignty. They also rejected it because um, uh, the, uh, the status of an occupying power is regulated by various United Nations instruments uh, and those envisage that you are going to apply the law in force in the place in question and not a law that you have brought with you in your backpack uh, from uh, the United Kingdom. Uh, uh, one only has to ask oneself uh, whether, for example, uh, the uh, British authorities could be responsible as an occupying power for failing to introduce gender equality uh, in a Muslim society like Iraq during the period when they were in occupation there. Um, uh, I think the, uh, the, the Strasbourg court's view uh, was uh, therefore uh, less realistic than the view taken in the House of Lords. Uh, there is, uh, as, to, as to whether it's binding, this isn't a problem that only arises in the context like that. Uh, Strasbourg decisions, the, the law says, uh, the Human Rights Act says, that the British courts are obliged to take note of them. They're not technically bound by them, but there is a difficulty about ignoring them, uh, and it is this. Uh, under other provisions uh, of the Human Rights Convention, not the ones that have been enacted into United Kingdom domestic law, uh, the, as you know, uh, the uh, 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 convention countries are required uh, to comply with judgments of the Strasbourg Court uh, and indeed to give progress reports on steps they've been taking uh, to do better next time. Uh, therefore, a failure by the English courts to follow Strasbourg would lead to a situation uh, in which the Strasbourg Court itself was insisting on its own view, and the British government was duty-bound to respect its view, but the British courts uh, were saying something different. That is not an attractive state of affairs. I don't want to rule out the possibility that a sufficiently extreme case might arise, and there have been, of course, cases uh, relating to evictions from council flats and so on, which have given rise to that kind of difference. Um, but it's not a situation which the courts are likely to want to court. After 9-11, Britain um, declared uh, some foreign um, armed rebels fighting their um, oppression by their own governments for decades. Um, but the, op the oppressors two years ago, the single, for example, in Sri Lanka, which is a Commonwealth country, 
uh, the Sinhalese um, retired top civil servants, diplomats, including one UN Undersecretary General, professors, lawyers, and a judge, went and told LLRC that from the time of independence till today, successive governments have been oppressing the ethnic minorities and they created the armed rebels. They went and told them. But the rebels have been wiped out still in Western courts, uh, Tamils are. Um, sentenced, oh, you were, you belong to that group and all that. How do these oppressed people get justice? And Britain, especially at the Commonwealth or the UN, has not been doing anything for 64 years. Anything, it has not been doing anything for the oppressed people. And still they are considered by British courts, oh, terrorists. But uh, the terrorism of the government, nobody considers as terrorism. I mean, the, we recognise uh, the government of Sri Lanka. The, the, the United Kingdom recognises the government of Sri Lanka. Uh, it is not therefore likely uh, to get into an argument of that kind with them. But if it did, it wouldn't be the concern of the courts. The position in that case would be exactly the same as the Israeli case, Al-Haq. They would say it is not the responsibility of the United Kingdom uh, to protest against breaches of human rights um, in, in other countries uh, in circumstances where these, they, these do not impact the domestic legal order in the United Kingdom. That is currently the law. Uh, and I, I entirely see that one might, uh, on a political level, object to the line that the British government takes, but I don't see that there's any scope for a legal objection. Gentlemen, here. I'm Dan Pilsen, I'm a retired public servant of very known in nature. I'm not a lawyer of any kind. Um, I, I suspect that a lot of these cases are an individual uh, litigating against the state in its various forms. What intrigues me is whether, and I'm aware that the process of judicial review has grown and is growing, probably in the eyes of the British government, ought to be diminished, but they can't quite work out how. Uh, what I'd like to know is whether the changes in legal aid will cause a reduction in the number of such cases that are reaching the courts all the way up to the Supreme Court, or whether in practice it won't have any impact because there are sponsors of one kind or another for those who are litigating against the state. Well, I honestly don't know the answer to that question. Um, I, I, certainly it is true that a number of these cases have been supported on legal aid in the past. Uh, and undoubtedly the changes to the legal aid system is going to make that rarer in future. But as you say, there are uh, sponsors um, for litigation um, and they may simply step in to fill the gap. Uh, I simply don't know. Uh, at the same time, I, mean, I have to say that I think that there are a number of reasons why one can legitimately argue um, that the courts uh, have gone too far uh, in recognising particular kinds of rights, and there are arguments to the opposite effect. But one would not like to see the argument simply foreclosed by the inability of a litigant to fund a case in which he may, who knows, have a perfectly good case. 
Thank you. Uh, John Yeom, I teach history and politics. My question is whether or not there is a tendency on the part of the executive to perhaps uh, cut rather loose when it comes to legal matters. Whether one considers, for example, the controversies you mentioned about uh, Suez and Iraq and the treatment of the uh, prisoners at Guantanamo. And if that is the case, uh, what, exact, what redress can the courts really bring when, frankly, the, the damage has been done? Well, um, the fact that the damage has been done won't itself prevent the courts uh, from dealing with the matter, though it may not be able to do it by way of injunction. Um, I mean, I think that British attitudes to this have changed a very great deal, not only in the area that I've been talking about, but in all areas. Of course, you are absolutely right to say that in the 1950s, um, there was no concern for the legal implications of governmental decisions at all, because the uh, scope for challenging them was minuscule, um, uh, and very few of them succeeded. Um, <coughs> at the moment, uh, I think that it's quite the opposite. I, mean, I can only speak from personal experience uh, of those cases in which I have been involved professionally, uh, which is uh, quite a considerable number. My uh, impression, uh, just of the statistically unrepresentative sample uh, of senior civil servants that I come across, is that they are very concerned indeed to ensure that they comply with the law. That isn't as easy as one might think, because the facts can be complicated and the law is sometimes unclear. Uh, but it is absolutely not true uh, that they ride uh, fast and loose and recklessly through this area. Uh, and that applies, in my experience, at least as much, if not more, to departments like the Foreign Office and indeed both of the principal intelligence services as it does to any other department. I wonder if I could extrapolate that a little by asking what your lecture tells us about the health of the institutions you have touched on, namely the civil service, mm. the government, the domestic courts, and the European Court of Human Rights? Well, uh, that's a very large question. Um, <laughs> several Indeed. more lectures would be required. Um, the, um, what I think it tells you <coughs> about the, um, the health of the relationship between the courts and the executive is uh, that there is a large degree of pragmatism on the part of the courts, which often makes it difficult to predict what they are going to do, uh, but which does mean that the prospect of an independent uh, review of the rationality and fairness of government decisions is always there, and that has had a, a very significant, and I think almost entirely positive impact uh, on uh, the professional civil service and indeed ministers. Uh, there are undoubtedly cases where the degree uh, of uh, judicial intrusion into administrative decisions uh, tends to displace the responsibility of ministers to parliament. And this is a subject on which I uh, gave an earlier lecture towards the end of last year. Um, but uh, it, it seems to me that um, this is an area which is still evolving. And at the moment, uh, I think that the balance um, is probably too far uh, in favour of the reviewability of some categories of decision. 
namely decisions which are not about the application of policy to individuals, which ought to be reviewable and on an exacting basis, but uh, decisions by the courts about the actual substance of the policy and the process of its formulation, which seems to me to be close to the heart uh, of the um, uh, of one's democratic values, it seems to me that the decision of these matters uh, by judges necessarily uh, uh, adversely affects the lines of responsibility to the electorate through Parliament. But I don't regard that as a problem uh, which is particularly serious in the context of foreign relations, because foreign relations remains one area, as some of the citations that I included in my lecture show, uh, in which respect for the democratic mandate uh, of um, uh, politicians uh, will discourage the courts from intervening, except uh, on the micro level, i.e. not when reviewing actual decisions of foreign policy, um, uh, or in very rare cases where human rights implications at a domestic level are significant. And you're not tempted to tell us something about your view of the performance of the European Court of Human Rights? Well, uh, I'm on record as saying uh, that the European Court of Human Rights uh, is too keen on harmonising uh, the application of human rights across the 50-odd countries uh, which it has jurisdiction over uh, in circumstances where major cultural differences uh, mean that the same rights are not necessary or the same steps are not necessary to give effect to them in different places. Uh, I think that it is also uh, extrapolated from the fairly clear text of the Convention uh, so as to produce a state of human rights law which has become effectively a template for all human life. And I find that the inevitable resulting transfer of powers from democratically accountable politicians to the judiciary uh, is a, a, a negative development. I think that it's unfortunate. Um, a lot of this, of course, stems uh, from uh, the feeling widespread in Europe that democratic institutions have failed, that governments are too powerful. Uh, I do not myself subscribe to that view. Uh, I don't think democratic institutions have failed, certainly not in our country. And I don't think that the fact that a majority party has uh, a effective control over the House of Commons means to say that it isn't in fact accountable in a real and significant sense. Uh, we have seen at least one minister in the present government disappear as a result of failing to command the supporting sentiments uh, of uh, Parliament and we may be about to witness another one. I have a question here from Paul Kelly, Government Department. Well, Paul Kelly, Government Department. It's really to follow up on, on, on that. You, you, you reinforced the view that you, you still think foreign policy is special in the eyes of the judiciary. Well, the courts think so. Well, I was going to ask, I mean, clearly something's changed over the last 40, 50 years, but I wonder, is there also a problem that what makes foreign policy special is that this issue of democratic legitimacy, but of course that's, that's made more problematic when you have things like wars that seem to be deeply divisive in terms of the wider public, a sense that there's a separation between executive powers and, and the 
the, the unsettled view of the wider democracy. I, won I wonder how that plays on the minds of the judiciary when they're, you know, when they're thinking what, what really is off limits and what the boundaries are. And I, I wonder whether that might also horribly sort of slip into some of Martin's concerns about you know, European institutions as well, as they seem, at least in the way the press comes <coughs> to be increasingly remote from the way in which Majority opinion, or at least some accounts of majority opinion, seems to be going. So, who, start so who seems to be remote from it? The courts or the executive? The courts. Yes. Well, um, judges um, uh, live in the world and they are as much influenced uh, in their personal capacities by um, the, the, the sentiments of the population on issues like Iraq, on which it's virtually impossible not to have an opinion, uh, as anybody else. Um, now, their personal opinions, they're not, of course, there to give effect to their personal opinions, but all judges, to a greater or lesser degree, start from the answer and work backwards. The, the intellectual process inevitably involves starting with an educated instinct about what you would expect the answer to be. You then work back through the reasons. Sometimes you find you can't justify it, and if you're honest, you change your mind. Um, the, uh, but obviously, uh, the fact that you start with an instinct for the answer inevitably means that an altogether wider range of considerations may be relevant to your initial instinct than are actually going to be relevant to a judgment that you give on the issue. Um, I don't see how you can possibly detach judges uh, from the, the surrounding political atmosphere uh, uh, so long as they uh, do not become an automata. Uh, but I think that Every judge is conscious of the importance uh, of uh, keeping his own personal views or prejudices under control uh, and allowing a collective judicial value uh, to take over from them. Right. No, I, I, I think my, my point was more whether or not, as, as a group, that the specialness of foreign policy starts to diminish, if you like. Well, it has diminished to some extent, yeah. because it's become a question of degree, whereas we once said it was a no-go area, we now simply say it's a broad but not unlimited discretion. So we recognise the possibility that the government may do something which is legally unacceptable, something that we wouldn't have asked ourselves uh, 40 or 50 years ago. Yes, it's certainly changed in that respect. My name is Elsina Jeffers, and I um, recently had information on when the Supreme Court came here in England, uh -huh. we were of the opinion that at least we don't have to travel abroad to get legal issues through the system. Then, in what circumstances would the courts now be telling, in a particular case, this is the Courts of Appeal, uh -huh. no access to the Supreme Court. In what circumstances could that happen? Could, could what happen? Forgive no me. access to the Supreme Court. Well, uh, no case can go to the Supreme Court unless um, it, it's got permission either from the Court of Appeal or from the Supreme Court itself. In practice, the Court of Appeal hardly ever gives permission. Okay. So you need permission from the Supreme Court itself. And the, the criteria is, um, it's, it is simply, is, does this case raise a question of law of uh, such general importance that it ought to be decided by the Supreme Court? Um, it, it isn't the function of the Supreme Court uh, uh, to uh, right all injustices. 
it is the function of the Supreme Court uh, to clarify the law and to lay it down in a way that will command complete authority over all other courts. Uh, and that is something it's only prepared to do uh, if it is presented with a case in which not only is there an argument that something has gone wrong, mm -hmm. but the answer really matters to the general development of the law. I don't think that's an unreasonable state of affairs. You have a very wide right to go to the Court of Appeal, so there's at least one tier of appeal. Uh, and I can see no reason in principle why there should necessarily always be two. We have time for one final question at the front here. Uh, my name is Gavin Charles, I'm a student here at the LSE. Uh, you had quite a, a rapid transition from the bar to the judiciary. Um, about two seconds. <laughs> uh, I, I'm wondering what, if anything, has surprised you about the operations of the Supreme Court since your move to the other side of the bench? Not a great deal. Um, <laughs> I, um, uh, I spent a great deal of my time addressing the Supreme Court and its predecessor, the Judicial Committee of the House of Lords, uh, on the 60 or 70 odd occasions in the last 15 years of my time at the bar uh, when I was doing appeals before them. And I can only tell you that the court looks much the same from one end as it does from the other. <laughs> <laughs> On that happy note, I'm going to call the formal proceedings to an end. Thank you very much indeed.